pleasure When he says he's a good guy, it's probably a lie It's happily ever slasher The cabin in the woods has a four-star rating But the murder scene will be devastating He's coming on too strong, there might be something wrong It's happily ever slasher, the podcast I accept the recording. <laughs> Consent to recording. <laughs> hey guys, I'm Tara. And I'm Amanda, and this is Happily Ever Slasher, the podcast about two movies with one thing in common. Each week, we're watching one romantic comedy and one horror movie to find out just how much these two genres have in common. What movies are we talking about this week? This week, we're talking about the, dare I say, perfect film, The Silence of the Lambs from 1991. Also the year I'm from. Santa <laughs> Bullock fronted comedy, Miss Congeniality from 2000. And the theme of this week is being a female FBI agent is exhausting. Like, where are the HR departments in either of these movies? Clearly, the only way to make it through is to have an older male mentor. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Both of these movies are over 28 years old, so this is your spoiler alert, I guess. No, fuck that. I take it back. You don't get one. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the Dumbledore rule at this point. Like, if you don't know now, then, like, <laughs> that's on you. Have you seen these movies before? I have seen them both, and I better have after I just made that, like, statement. <laughs> that would be real bad if I was like, no, I actually, I've never seen them before. Um, I've seen them both a number of times. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, especially, I've seen. I actually just watched it a couple weeks ago with my parents. I feel like it's, like... Fun for the whole family. <laughs> and Miss Congeniality, I've also seen a bunch of times. I actually hadn't seen it in a while since I, until I watched it last night. What about you? I had also seen both of these. I was obsessed with Miss Congeniality when it came out. Like, all my friends loved it. I loved it. I remember having sleepovers, and we wanted to, like, be like Miss Texas and have the headphones and, like, the eye mask and we just took spot treatment and put it all over our face because it was green to make it look like a mask and it burned horribly and my mom was like you guys are fucking idiots and then you broke um, each other's noses we, we didn't do that but yeah I remember there was like a whole summer where all we did was play versions of Miss Congeniality uh, for reference, I was nine when this came out <laughs> and then Silence of the Lambs I watched one summer either in high school or when I, in like my first two years of college. And so I didn't like horror movies when I was a kid. I think I had seen like a few. I had seen like Swim Fan and Disturbia with friends and I thought they were fun. But my mom and my sister, not horror movie people, they're like the kind that get nightmares and never watch them. So I always thought I'd be the same. And this was like the first movie I watched. Where I was like, oh no. I fucking love this. Like, this is my thing. This is really good. And I want to do this over and over again. Is this your gateway horror movie? It is. It's my gateway. All right. I feel like Disturbia was my gateway. And Silence of the Lambs was like, I'm hooked. And yeah. I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a special place in my heart for this one. I really, really love it. So good. Should we do it? Should we get into it? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Miss Congeniality came out in the year 2000 and since then has gained a bit of a cult following, which I don't really understand, but apparently it's a thing. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it was great. I don't think it holds up. 
I feel like Sandra Bullock has a cult following that started in like the past few years. And this is like part of that (laughs) more than the actual movie. (laughs) The Sandy B Renaissance. (laughs) All right. So it was directed by Donald Petrie, who also directed other classic rom-coms like Mystic Pizza, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days and Grumpy Old Men. Which is a rom-com. It's not a <laughs> it was written by Mark Lawrence, Katie Ford, and Karen Lucas. And I'm blown away that there were two women writers on this project. That, like, baffled my mind. This is my guess on that. They wrote the original script. I'm going to give them women cred and say it was fine. And then he came in and did all the rewrites. And was like, but what if she, like, laughs with a snort? <laughs> and got all the and he rewrote all of Benjamin Bratt's lines to make them fucking obnoxious. <laughs> so it is the story of a cartoonishly bumbling FBI agent played by Sandy B, who goes undercover as a beauty pageant contestant to stop a terrorist attack. But first things first, makeover. <laughs> <laughs> and once she's not ugly, her misogynist coworker Benjamin Bratt takes an interest. And there you go. Rom-com. The classic formula that always works. <laughs> Take an already pretty actress, give her a natural makeup look, then give her a makeover. Tease her hair so it looks messy and then brush it out. <laughs> See, she's all that. It's basically the same. For reference. Sir, side please. It's emergency official business, ma'am. Hey, 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 get lost. FBI, you might want to stay out of this, all right, sir? All right, I would like oh, eight double tall lattes, one with no phone. Special Agent Gracie Hart is as tough as nails. She's got a lot of rage. <laughs> and she's completely unpolished. <laughs> Honey, hmm? are you a lesbian? Dad, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> But when the FBI needs an undercover agent... The bombers picked another target. We have ourselves a national emergency. It's the Miss United States pageant. The only man for the job <laughs> is a woman. You do a few butt-shaping exercises, you tighten this up, you can pull this off. You know what? Pull this off. Let's go, girl. So we open up with a flashback to kids on a playground in 1982 New Jersey. And we see young Gracie Hart. She's reading Nancy Drew, which I could relate to because I was a big Nancy Drew fan. Although, were you really? Yeah, I love Nancy Drew. (laughs) I did take a few of my old Nancy Drew books home from my parents' house like a month ago. And I like reread them. And they're corny as hell and very problematic in a lot of ways. But I really like having the nostalgic time reading them. But she's reading The Invisible Intruder, which wasn't my personal favorite, but it did remind me of our last episode on The Invisible Man. Everything <laughs> comes together. What a coincidence. <laughs> Listen to The Invisible Man episode. So she sees two boys fighting and decides to break it up. One of the boys gets all pissed and says, if you weren't a girl, I'd eat your face off, which is weird. <laughs> yeah. And also the first similarity to Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> kind of elector origin story <laughs> maybe <laughs> she tells him if you weren't a girl i'd eat your face off <laughs> burn are they and, saying eat or beat i totally didn't catch that oh i i, I was reading it as eat but i could be wrong because you're right that is a weird line 
let's go with eat because I do like the connection. <laughs> I feel like beat your face off also sounds weird. Like, I feel like it could be either or. Then we get, you know, the obligatory insult that like definitely has not aged well. Are you calling me a girl? I yeah. hate that so much. See, Dove like a girl. Cam- oh, no, not Dove. Tam- Tampax? It's always like a girl campaign. Oh. Isn't there a fight like a girl campaign too? Or it's throw like a girl. So marketing, this hurts me because it's like the most brilliant campaign. Yeah, I can't remember the brand it's tied to, which is Well, that's problematic because how it's a great commercial, but is it a great campaign if we can't remember what brand it was for? I guess not. I literally (laughs) just watched it this past week too. (laughs) No brands refill. So to make matters worse for her and also like feminism as a whole, the whole reason why she got involved in this fight is because she had a crush on one of the little kids that was like in the fight. So now, you know, after she defends his honor, his fragile male ego is bruised and he rejects her. That's like a defining moment of her childhood. And you fast forward to present day and she's on a sting operation at a Russian mob hangout reading the essential rules of Russian grammar. (laughs) <laughs> like I found this really okay tell me if I'm crazy but young her looks like baby Angelina Jolie and when they do the fast forward they try to do like an eye-to-eye matchup on the characters and I'm pretty sure like young her has like beautiful blue eyes and then Sandra Bullock has like these dark deep brown eyes and I was like I if you want this to be your matchup like I think you gotta maybe like give someone contacts or something <laughs> Oh my god, I didn't notice that, but I don't doubt it. What a silly, like, thing to not fix. Like, I feel like in 2000, you could also just, like, color correct, like, the little girl's eyes and, like, post, right? I don't know how that works, but I think you could. We're, like, one year away from Lord of the Rings, so you can do whatever they need. It's fine. (laughs) So she records a deal going down through a camera in this grammar book, which, like, at least do, like... Anna Karenina or like something that's less clearly a fake book like why would you read a a Russian grammar book in a Russian mob hangout I feel like that just calls attention to you she records this deal going down the rest of the all-male FBI agents bust in to save the day Um, Benjamin Bratt's character Eric Matthews who I can't call Eric Matthews because it just reminds me of the guy from Boy Meets World like the world so it's like I'm probably going to call him Benjamin Bratt for the sake of this, because, yeah. So he busts in, swings his dick around at the line, party's over, boys. <laughs> just like, Okay, they have him dressed up as a homeless guy, and I just have to say, like, it still works for me. <laughs> Very hipster chic. Sexy hobo, I like it. <laughs> The mob boss starts choking, and Sandra Bullock breaks orders to save his life, which results in a shootout. And this bothered me because it's like, surprise, her compassion is, like, revealed to be this huge flaw that, like, gets people killed and all that shit. But we can get more into that later, because I feel like that's something that comes back a couple times. So after all this goes down, the relationship between, like, Gracie and Benjamin Bratt's character is kind of introduced... He's shown to be a little bit cold, tells her she made the wrong choice, and she also looks like hell, which is not great. She's clearly upset about this, obviously. She goes back to her apartment and rips open a hungry man dinner, like a divorced dad in an 80s sitcom. (laughs) 
<laughs> I wanted that dinner though. I don't I, have a microwave. I, I miss shit like that. <laughs> you need to get one. <laughs> also, she doesn't cut open the dessert, which is an amateur mistake. You need to cut around the brownie or it's not going to cook right. <laughs> also, and I find it so funny. She's like the only character I've ever seen in a rom-com in New York who has like a normal apartment. And she's also the only character who has a job that would justify the top kind of apartments you usually see in New York in movies. Like, oh, an point. FBI could actually have, like, a really cool, like, penthouse or something. Oh, that's so true. At this point, we meet the big bad of the movie, which is a terrorist called The Citizen. And there's this random bit about her being sent on like a Starbucks run for all her male colleagues, which is like played for laughs. And I'm pretty sure it's like a line in the trailer and a big joke. And like, cause she cuts the line and says she's FBI and then orders a bunch of shit. Yeah. I have to say like, I'll give it, it's so unnecessary in the movie, but I feel like they weren't trying to do a sexist thing with that. They were just trying to give her like a funny, like she's going to use her FBI powers to do something normal. And we'll give Sandy B a moment to just, like, I don't know, Sandy B out. <laughs> totally. No, I definitely think so, too. But it is convenient that, like, they sent the woman for the coffee. So we meet the boss, the big boss of the FBI. I don't know what you call Is it the chief? I don't know what you call the boss at the FBI. Director? Director, yes. We meet the director, who's played by Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters. Um, and he's great in this, even though it was kind of mean towards the end, but I always love him. And he puts Benjamin Bratt's character in charge of the citizen case. Bratt's kind of shown to be like a little bit of a womanizer. He's dating a college undergrad and he's like minimum 35 years old, like on a good day. Like the actor's in his forties. That one got me too, because I feel like, I don't know, there's like this weird, like pinning of like women against women and when you first meet his date I felt like it was supposed to be like like she's a tomboy and she doesn't like the girly girl type thing but then it's like uh oh no he's dating an undergrad and that's really wrong it's not just that she's a girly girl but it's also like doubly wrong in that like it doesn't seem like she the undergrad knows she's on a date she's there to like she's studying something related to the FBI or like criminology. And so she's there to like interview him on practices and like, doesn't seem to know. Like I, I thought it didn't read that. Like she knew they were on a date necessarily. Like she was just showing up to interview him. Oh, that's true. Cause then she's like, I'd love a female perspective. And then Benjamin Brad has some sort of sexist line. Are most of the people in here are agents? Yeah. As a matter of fact, here's an agent right here. Gracie Hart, mm. Beth Carter. Mm. Wow. Mm. <laughs> Right back to you. Beth is an undergrad at Vassar. She's doing a paper on law enforcement. I'm going to help her get an inside look. And I bet she'll do the same for you. You know, Gracie, I would love to get a woman's point of view. Oh, no, 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 Beth. You're barking up the wrong tree. Right, Hart? Oh, that's really smart. I didn't even notice that because I'm too busy watching Gracie, who's shown, like, chowing down on a burger, chewing with her mouth open, snorting, making bad dad jokes. Like, she's essentially, like, a cartoon character at this point. Like, they don't, like, her character is just, like, so distractingly over the top. Like, try they're really trying to frump up Sandra Bullock, which is, like, impossible to do, so they have to give her all these, like, horrible habits and stuff. 
Yeah. After this, the FBI and Gracie both realized that the citizen's letter points to an attack at the Miss United States beauty pageant. I love this scene because they go to an office and it's like a room full of men who cannot like get it together with like next steps. And Gracie is basically just telling them what they should do. And like parroting, parroting it back to her. Like they just thought of it. Like, I feel like one of them even has the line, like, now I'm thinking. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. For, like, every woman in every industry ever, it's just, like, collective, like, groan of solidarity. But it's, like, like, they're not playing it to be, like, oh, look at this real thing that happens. These guys are such jerks. We're supposed to be, like, oh, ha-ha, like. It's yeah. so funny. She's like so gross. She's not even like noticeable. <laughs> it's so true. It's horrible. So now this part's even better because they bring in some technology that definitely did not exist. <laughs> it's like the clueless technology that we've talked about before. The like the Valentine technology. Yeah. Oh yeah. Valentine clueless. I feel like this was big in the early 2000s, the nineties and the early 2000s was like inventing technology that did not exist to make computers do things that they wanted them to do. Yeah. So yeah. And the team who couldn't think up like calling the pageant people to like tell them what was happening have found a way to splice a dress up Sally website with an FBI database. What what bothers me is that they have a woman like in mind immediately who they think would be good for the job. And rather than like go talk to her, interview her, like get her in the room for anything, their first thing's like, let's get a bathing suit on her digitally. And then they're like, oh no, she's pregnant. Pregnancy <laughs> ruins every woman's career. Yeah, it's crazy. Like that was their first thought. And so they basically just start undressing everyone's FBI photos, which, like, I didn't realize the FBI kept, like, underwear, full-length underwear photos of all its agents on file. Me neither. They're doing it to, like, all the guys as, like, a joke, and then they get to Gracie, and it's just, like, objectification central. And they, like, want her to do it. And she's like, I don't own a dress. I don't even own a brush. And I'm, like, groaning. Like, who wrote this character? Like, I don't even own a brush. (laughs) (laughs) The, the whole, like, culture of this scene, though, with, like, everyone, like, surrounding them, looking at these things and giggling and, like, rating their colleagues, like, man or woman, it, I, it was really upsetting. <laughs> I did not like that. Yeah, it was. Like, even, like, they do it to, like, the director and then he's right behind them, which, yeah, like, so violating. Maybe I shouldn't say so violating before we go into Silence of the Lambs, but I really, really, really don't like it. <laughs> Sliding scale. <laughs> we now we meet the pageant, like the people who run the pageant, and it's Candace Bergen playing Kathy Morningstar and William Shatner playing Stan. I forget his last name, but his first name is Stan. And Feels the whole movie, Shining Star. <laughs> I feel like yeah, as William Shatner gets older too, I feel like his comedic roles are like increasingly like more and more entertaining. Definitely. So, like, they're against this whole thing of, like, having an agent on the inside. They tell them, go to the network. And that they say that they went to the network, but the network refused to cancel. And, like, I feel like it's super clear at this point that this movie is, like, pre-9-11. Because this is, like, a visible, like, a, a viable threat. Like, this guy is a clear terrorist who has done things before. To, so to not cancel the beauty pageant when they have, like, a, 
a real reason to believe he's going to attack is like crazy. But like they just like yuck it up and eventually they bring in Michael Caine who's playing Victor, who's the pageant coordinator and he's tasked with making Gracie pretty. <laughs> Tough job with Sandra Bullock. <laughs> like how will So he hard. However, will he do it? He wants to quit on the spot. It can't be done. So yeah, like everyone's acting like Gracie's like a hideous monster, which is crazy because it's Sandra Bullock. And she gets a makeover while all the boys sit around and eat a giant sandwich. Yeah, they need an entire airplane hangar to, like, make this woman beautiful on the staff of, like, 50 people. (laughs) It's so dramatic and over the top. And, like, Benjamin Brad has some more, like, ridiculous lines, like, around this sandwich. It's like, that's a lot of meat. Ever seen one this big? And I'm like, just stop. Like, someone report this guy. Like, this is not okay. They also have that scene, I think it's before this, where they're fighting in the FBI gym. And he, like, straight up, like, slaps her ass and is like, it just needs to be a little tighter. <laughs> You're an important member of the undercover team. Yeah, right. In a thong. Hey! In a tasteful one piece. Come on, look, you do a few butt shaping exercises. You tighten this up, you can pull this off. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> oh my god, you're so right. Oh. At this point, Gracie comes out, she's all done up. Everyone's staring at her. Brat's in shock. I'm just gonna call him Brat. <laughs> all I wanted when this says horrible things about me, but when this movie came out, I was like, she the way she walks out is so fucking hot and that dress and her hair. I was like, I just wanna be here. This is the coolest thing. But it is like they make her so unsophisticated and like it's so hard to make her over. She rocks those heels like I'm sorry someone wearing heels for the first time is not gonna do that in one night and then they like have her do this runway walk and she kills it and then she's just like "Ah," and falls down I'm like no you are fine (laughs) you clearly have like ankle control and strength (laughs) know how to use your hips to like work the balance they needed it for the trailer Tara so she had to fall (laughs) They needed that shot. That shot was, like, everywhere when this movie came up. So now we're at the pageant. It's in Texas, randomly. I appreciate the line where they're talking about it. And one of the guys is like, Texas, the Alamo. And then another guy goes, I forgot about the Alamo. (laughs) Totally went over my head as a kid. (laughs) A little fun throwaway line. (laughs) So we meet... The other contestants, the one that's, like, of the most note is Mr. Rhode Island, who's played by Heather Burns, which I didn't realize till I was looking up stuff after watching. Did you realize she plays Christina, the girl that works at Meg Ryan's bookstore and You've Got Mail? Oh, my God. She is. I She's never would have put that together, but... Yeah. She looks really different. Oh, that's so funny. She's the cyber sex girl. Yes. <laughs> My character's a lot more savvy than Miss Rhode Island. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, we, we're at, like, a big, like, pageant event. We find out William Shatner's character, Stan, is getting canned this year. She, so she starts practicing for the pageant with Victor. And the this scene is constantly getting slapped out of her hands. Yeah! Not, not allowed to sleep or eat the entire movie, but looks beautiful. <laughs> that, that really bothered me, too, because I'm like, her weight was never one of like like she always had like a killer body that's why they chose her so just like let her keep doing what she's doing there's no need to like put her on a diet and make her look sickly 
That's a good point because she's an FBI. Like she's like her job is basically part of her job is to be like in like shape to like kick criminal ass. So she has to like she's like very fit. The scene is crazy too because he she tries. It's like a bit where she puts donuts in her boob in her like bra cups. Donuts. <laughs> yeah. So Michael Caine makes him take them out and they're clearly plastic, like dog toy type donuts. And uh, one of them is the chocolate frosted and comes up with all the frosting on stuff. Yeah. Uh, like at least use two of the plain donuts or make there be frosting visible somewhere. Cause that is just not falling out. <laughs> so there's like a moment now where like Gracie and Benjamin Bratt almost kiss. But, like, right as he's, like, leaning in, he, like, changes his mind and takes a bite of, like, a candy bar, which is, like, very phallic. Just, like, bites into the Snickers. <laughs> he also tells her, is this the you look good wet scene? Oh, I think that might come later, but it's a similar scene. The HR files on this guy have to be, like, its own cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, ah, oh, the Eric Matthews file. <laughs> I still can't say Eric He's, he's hitting them all at Eric Matthews from Boy Meets World, and that's how he's getting away with it. Oh, my God. Um, so now they're at a talent portion of the competition, and here's another instance where Gracie's kind of, like, compassion and, like, overthinking of, you know, situations gets in her way. She sees a guy in the audience who's wearing a cowboy hat and has a gun because they're in Texas, and she reads into it like he's a shooter. Um, and another one that like did not age well. Cause I feel like gun violence has become such a thing that like everyone's response is like, Oh, how crazy she overreacted to this gun where I'm like nowadays, if someone brought a gun to like the talent portion of the Miss America contest, like even in Texas, I think people would not like think twice about someone like pinning them down <laughs> or like calling that out. I would hope so. I don't know how Texas works, to be honest. But I feel like if it was to happen anywhere, Texas is, like, the one state where people can walk. I mean, I honestly don't know. Like, I don't understand, but people do walk around with guns on them, right? I don't know. I've never been to Texas. Can you I have not either, to be honest. But you're right. This scene does not this scene would not be as kind of like batshit crazy as it was played for in the year 2000. So Ernie Hudson comes to town because he hears about this like mess up. They also find out at this point that the citizen might be a woman because they found woman DNA on the letter. Oh, so now that like Gracie's pretty and stuff, we have this scene where her like surveillance camera she's wearing catches her boobs in a mirror and now all of a sudden Benjamin Bratz all like defensive of her and like blocking the view from like the other male FBI agents and I'm like you were never like this with her until now that you're like attracted to her now you're all like protective I think he just wants to watch it by himself (laughs) (laughs) this is also the swimsuit competition Okay, so, like, literally everyone else, except for, I think, like, Miss Nebraska, who's one of the only other people who makes it into, like, the top five, <laughs> wonder why, has is wearing a one-piece. And she gets given, like, the skimpiest bikini ever. And, like, she rocks it, but it's, like, 
if clearly like one pieces are the standard and like what everybody's, I mean, like this swimsuit competition's fucked up, but like there's no reason to put her in that kind of bathing suit. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, if you're the, if you're an FBI agent going undercover and you're forced to be in a swimsuit competition, you're wearing a one piece. Like that's just like how everyone else is too. And it will look totally normal. Like it's not needed for her cover. No one would be like, huh, she wore a one piece. I don't think she's a beauty queen. (laughs) (laughs) That happens. And then we get some backstory that Cheryl, Miss Rhode Island was an animal activist at one point who got arrested. So they asked Gracie to like pump her for information so to do this she gracie brings a pizza and beer and then makes like a terrible joke about the fact that contestants are going to throw up the beer and the pizza anyway the like normalness with which they treat like eating disorder behaviors and habits in this and like make jokes out of them is i yeah. really and not to mention the fact that like this pizza she tells him this is a very large cheese pizza and this thing is a personal pizza it's like six slices it is a tiny pizza <laughs> It's like 90% vegetables on top. (laughs) I mean, pizza is basically vegetarian. So they, obviously that wasn't enough pizza for all those girls. So they go out drinking and they end up taking like those test tube shots that like was very nostalgic for me from college and like made me want to throw up just watching them do it. I like... Growing up, I thought shots only came in test tubes because of this movie. And I've only ever had that once. <laughs> no way. Oh, my God. We got to get you some test tube shots. I, you are the only person in the rest of my life I will ever now do another test tube shot with because I have to have this experience with you. <laughs> but when we get to record in person next, we'll do test tube shots. <laughs> You have to get like, them at like a shitty bar. They don't count. Like they need to be like brought to you in like a container of like you pick the color you want. They all taste the same. Like heartburn and regret is <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> but you pick the color. I would always get red. I don't know why. I, I think I'd like to think it was cherry, but it definitely wasn't. I prefer my regret in purple. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> they tell you it's grape, but it's not. <laughs> It's purple food coloring and vodka. At this point, like you were saying with like how they just casually talk about like anorexia and stuff like that. Now they casually talk about rape, which is fun when they talk to Miss Rhode Island just casually mentions that she was sexually assaulted by her lit professor and didn't report it because she says stuff like that happens all the time, which is like made me so angry. And then Gracie has, like, the worst response ever, which is very victim-blamey, of being like, oh, man, like, I could teach you some moves. I'm like, that's not the issue. The issue is not her self-defense skills. It's that her professor fucking sexually assaulted her. Yeah, that was really hard. And, like, you could tell, like, the script meant to make Sandra Bullock supportive. And that, like, was at the time, I feel like. Like, at the time, it was like, oh, how empowering. Like, she's going to teach them self-defense skills. I think that's another thing these two, this movie and Silence of the Lambs have in common is they wanted to be forward-thinking, but it, the time they were made in, just, like, the, what they were thinking wasn't up to par with today. So watching them back in hindsight is a little bit, like, cringy. I, I think Silence of the Lambs does it better It's got some LGBTQ issues, but I think the way it portrays its female characters, it succeeds. 
um, in a way that like still applies today that Miss Congeniality obviously doesn't. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I think the part I was referring to was the LGBTQ stuff in Silence of the Lambs versus this type stuff in Miss Congeniality. So like different parts of it, just like they're trying, but it's not, it's not enough or it's not what it, what it would be today. If that makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll get into it. We'll get into it in the comparisons. More stuff happens. <laughs> we find out Kathy Morningstar was a one-time runner-up, but she got the crown because the winner got food poisoning. And we also find out they're going to fire her, too, at the end of the competition or at the end of the season. I don't know how these things work. We find out the citizen is arrested, but Gracie believes that the recent, the most recent letter for the Miss United States pageant was a copycat, not actually the citizen, but no one believes her. And, you know, this, this might be because she messed up like a number of times and not necessarily because she's a woman, but like the reason why she messed up, I feel like is related to her womanhood, like her compassion and her empathy and stuff like that. So I feel like they really put it on the fact that a male agent wouldn't have fucked up in those ways. What bothers me, though, is that they don't set the precedent for, like, her empathy and compassion outside of her work fuck-ups. Like, we never see her being very compassionate or empathetic in her everyday life. It's always, like, her rage is her weakness and her issue. And then it's, like, on the job, like, oh, no, she suddenly can't do it the same way because she's a woman and has feelings. But there's, like, no groundwork for that anywhere else in her character development. That's really true. Like, they give her barely any backstory except for that opening scene when she's a kid which I guess like that scene doesn't even work because it's not compassion that gets her to break up that fight it's the fact that she likes one of the little boys it's lust <laughs> yeah. 12 year old lust <laughs> and she says like I don't have relationships I don't have friends and we're supposed to understand like it's some sort of like it, I don't know. It's supposed to make us feel like she needs Victor's help in the makeover in order to feel like a complete person and a woman, like there's something missing that she's avoiding. But it, it just feels sexist and half-hearted yeah. and not well done and developed. We then find out that no one's going to support her in her decision that she thinks that this is this terrorist attack is still going to happen Ernie Hudson tells the team to leave. No one's going to stay with her. No one supports her. Even Benjamin Bratt's like, no, there's no reason to believe that you're right. He's weak. (laughs) (laughs) And he's an ass kisser. I feel like he's definitely an ass kisser with the director. She stays. Victor leaves. They have a nice moment that was kind of nice when he says goodbye to her as he's stealing all the toiletries. (laughs) That was hilarious. We then find out that Frank, the creepy assistant, is actually Kathy's son, and he has a criminal record. We find this out because Victor tells Benjamin Bratt's character. Now Benjamin Bratt believes... Because a man uh, told him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. But luckily, Sandy B gets to beat him up as her talent portion, which is great. <laughs> this section still held up for me. I still really enjoyed this. <laughs> Same. I really liked watching Benjamin Brackett, the shit kicked out of him. (laughs) (laughs) Good filmmaking. So like as finalists start to get eliminated from the competition, we get a lot of random, random stuff happening. So first, when Victor sneaks Benjamin Bratt backstage, he has to get him past security and he tells security, oh, he's with me. And Brackett's all defensive, like, oh, it's not like that. 
It's like, chill out. (laughs) I love that. Fuck, just chill the fuck out. A lot of homophobia in this movie. So much. And so then we get like, but they're not, they're not homophobic because they give Miss New York a throwaway line when she gets, when she gets eliminated and she screams into the audience, something about like a lesbian making it this far. Then you get a man in the control room asking like, can we say lesbian? I don't know. I think that's still homophobic because they're only playing it for laughs. It's not like, and look, beauty queens can be diverse. It's like, this woman was a lesbian. Lol. (laughs) Oh, totally. Totally. They just, but I think they wanted to be like, I don't think they thought they were being homophobic. I think they just were. It's almost worse because they didn't even know they were doing it. And, like, did we ever get any, like, Miss New York backstory? Like, was there ever any other mention of her sexuality prior to this, like, one moment? Nope. Yeah, it's so fucking stupid. Like, it's so ridiculous that they, like, didn't give this woman any backstory and then just have her with this, like, throwaway line in this one scene. I really think it's just supposed to be a joke. I don't think it's supposed to be, like, anything. Oh, I'm giving this movie too much credit. Oh, man. (laughs) I mean, I I hope you're right. I'm cynical, but... Also, there's, like, one black woman in the final five, and she's the first one to get eliminated, which is, like, just ugh. Like, why? I do feel like there is probably more diversity in Miss Congeniality's version of the pageant than there is in real life, so. <laughs> That's but, sad. Because in 2000, when did, um, when did Vanessa Williams win? She was the first black Miss America. The 80s. Because they're, they're two in the top ten. Plus Miss Alaska. I don't know. They, I, I, it was one thing I noticed that they like actually had when you went into the Miss America like breakfast, like a good amount of diversity in the background and of her friends and the ones who got speaking roles, not real names, but speaking roles. She she had like two black friends and one Asian. And I think one, I think Miss New York is also supposed to be like Latina, but I don't know. It. It's not great. <laughs> they don't have names. They're definitely like caricatures. Gracie realizes that the bomb is in the crown and she tries to get it from the winner, who's Miss Rhode Island. Um, and Miss Rhode Island's obviously just super excited to have won. William Shatner is talk singing this whole time, which is like hilarious. <laughs> I love that at the end too, when he was like, they ruined my song. <laughs> so it ends, they, they end up stopping the attack. Uh, they celebrate Gracie at a pageant breakfast and give her the award of Miss Congeniality, and she gives a nice little speech. I just want to say that uh, I'm very, uh, very honored and moved and truly touched. And... do want world peace she now doesn't think beauty pageants are as superficial as she used to blah 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 and then benjamin bratt who's been mean to her like most of the movie didn't believe her in the end asks her out on a date and she says yes and that's the end <laughs> yay miss <Kajini. laughs> um 
So would you like to talk about another movie with a female FBI agent taking her first big case and trying to prove that she's worth more than her appearance in a male-dominated field, aided by queer mentor and fighting a killer who covets ideal feminine experience? <laughs> you know what I would. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So... Silence of the Lambs is a 1991 horror movie directed by Jonathan Demme, and it was based on Thomas Harris's novel. It stars Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, and it has, like, a bunch of super weird cameos that feel like they shouldn't be there, given how serious it is. I saw them come up in the credits at the beginning, and I was like, that can't be right. There gotta be two people with the same name. Well, the Roger Corman one makes sense. So Roger Corman did a bunch of, like, B-movies in the 50s, including the original Little Shop of Horrors and, like, a lot of Vincent Price uh, and Carl and Poe adaptations. And he's the FBI director. I thought of you when I saw his name pop up. (laughs) The weird one is Chris Isaac, who's, like, the pop singer who sings Wicked Game. is one of, like, the SWAT agents when Hannibal Lecter, like, steals a face and runs away. Oh, my God, is that the hot one? Yeah, the one, that, the one that's too pretty and they spend too much time on and you're kind of like, why? It's because it's Chris Isaac. It's a cameo. I didn't know. I don't know what he looks like, so I didn't know that that was him. And I just wrote down, woo, <laughs> hot agent, hope he's okay. And he does live, so, phew. He, he, like, weirdly makes it into the title credits. So it's one of only three movies ever, the others being One Flew Over the Cuckoo Next, <laughs> Cuckoo Next, Cuckoo Nest, and it happened one night that ha- that won the top five categories at the Oscars, which are Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. And I think, I couldn't find this online, but I remember talking about one of my film classes that... I think Anthony Hopkins has the shortest screen time in a movie for anyone who's won Best Actor, or is like one of the people with the shortest screen time. And at the time, it was the only horror film ever to win Best Picture. Now we have Shape of Water and Parasite. I'm not sure if either of those count, <laughs> but um, I think I still think that's pretty a pretty interesting fun fact. Yeah. So let's listen to the trailer and hear more about it. <laughs> You spook easily, Starling? Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job, but never forget what he is. But he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lecter's missing and arms. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? Thank you, Clary. So, 
we start on a scene that feels very similar to Twilight and Fear, where we have like cloudy woods and we see Clarice running through it and climbing up a hill at Quantico. We don't really get a good sense of her face, but she gets pulled out of training to go see Dr. Crawford at the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. She does get to high five her friend Ardelia on on her way, which I liked. Like female solidarity, high five, and then she keeps going. Yeah, just like Miss Congeniality, she too has a black friend uh, <laughs> with the speaking role, um, which is the thing I'll talk about in the comparisons. But Dr. Crawford studying serial killers to get profiles of their personality and mind to help them on future cases. And he wants her to present a questionnaire to Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who is a cannibalistic serial killer and who was a psychiatrist before he was caught and imprisoned because Dr. Hannibal Lecter does not like him and he can't get him to take the survey. And he has this great line, which I noted. I remember you from my seminar at UVA. You grilled me pretty hard, as I recall, in the Bureau's civil rights record in the Hoover years. I gave you an A. A minus, sir. Let's see, double major, psych and criminology, graduated magna, summer internships at the Reisinger Clinic. It says here, when you graduate, you want to come to work for me in behavioral science. I just thought this was important to note because <laughs> maybe I should put this in the comparison, but we actually get some background for why she's chosen outside of like, oh, she's a pretty woman. We know that like, she's top of her class. She wants to do psych and behavioral science. She wants to work specifically for this guy, and she's kind of fucking killed it in the past, particularly in his class and impressed him. I will say that they kind of have a line later. I think it's Hannibal Lecter has a line where he, he like insinuates that Crawford has given her opportunities because he's attracted to her and that he like wants something to happen. And I feel like I agree it's her merits that have got her all these things, but that line casts like this doubt on it that I think is like important because then you're like, yes, she is all these things, but how, you know, did that impact her at all? I don't know. So both Hannibal and Dr. Chilton, who runs the, I don't know what you would call it. It's not quite a jail. It's just got serial killers in the basement. (laughs) The Arkham Asylum. Yeah. But he, he has a similar line where he kind of implies like, oh, like, of course, Crawford sent you. You're exactly Hannibal Lecter's like taste or something. But I do think that like both those characters are kind of they're, they're both like toxic men and they're both trying to, I think, unnerve her and make her doubt herself. So how credible their lines actually are, I think, is something up for a debate. But so she goes to meet Hannibal Lecter. She inter- she meets Dr. Chilton who's like super pervy and territorial and also says that Lecter sees him as his nemesis. She finally gets down to meet Hannibal and she has to pass this. Like she goes through this row of serial killers who are all kind of jeering at her and she gets to Hannibal and he's standing behind a glass wall with his hands behind his back, looking straight forward very neatly. I just think that like the the aesthetic of the glass wall and what it allows them to do in filming is just brilliant because you're able to they both have these close-ups straight to camera while they're talking so it feels like intensely personal like they're meeting each other and they're able to have these moments of like back and forth without having bars in between them disrupting their faces and looking like they're in the same room and very close yeah Um, it does have like a 
it does further separate him from like the other serial killers. Like he's not like the other serial killers. <laughs> he's special. <laughs> also, he has a great line that's like, memory is what I have instead of a view. And I'm like, same Hannibal, same. <laughs> it's very relatable. <laughs> but yeah, so he's originally very cordial with her and conversational. But as she tries to get information out of him, she sends through the questionnaire. He starts dissecting her. Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor wire trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. Does your father do as your coal miner? Does he stink of the land? And oh, how quickly the boys found you. All those tedious, sticky fumblings in the backseats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the FBI. And then he gives us the iconic census line of a census man tried to question me once and I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. (laughs) (laughs) I love that sound effect. Like, Anthony Hopkins deserved the Oscar just for that. Like, that... (laughs) That's so gross. That was wrong. I don't know. It's hard. I sound like I'm eating spaghetti. What's the liver being slurped up? So she goes to leave and there's an inmate next to Hannibal called Meg's who throws semen on her, he's been jacking off, which was disgusting, but then also magically disappears from her face. Oh, I was too busy trying not to vomit to notice. I, that scene makes me want to throw up every time I watch it. It's, it's pretty upsetting. So, so Hannibal calls her back and says he wouldn't have this discourtesy happen to her. So we get a sense of his morality and his kind of rules of living. And then he gives her a riddle Look deep within yourself, Clarice Starling. Go seek out Miss Moffat, an old patient of mine, M-O-F-E-T. And then she she leaves. We see her back at her FBI training in Quantico. They're doing an exercise. She doesn't check the corners. This will give us great anxiety later on. <laughs> but then she gets a call from Crawford, and he tells her that Meg's the inmate next to Hannibal, is dead. They heard Lecter whispering to him. It's implied he killed himself. And so we get a sense from this of like how manipulative Hannibal can be. And they've told her when she goes to visit him, don't tell him anything personal. You don't want this guy inside your head. Clarice finds out that there is a yourself storage unit in Baltimore with a unit under the name of Miss Moffat. So she goes there and finds a dismembered head in a jar. She goes back to Lecter to find out whose head is in the jar. And he explains that Miss Moffat was actually a patient, Benjamin something, who was a former patient. Benjamin Rasdale, thank you. She she thinks Hannibal killed him at first, and he says, no, I found him dead in his apartment. Someone else did it. And then he kind of implies that he knows who Buffalo Bill is. She asks who decapitated the patient, starting to put together that this would be the same person. Oh, sorry. I know I haven't brought up Buffalo Bill yet. Buffalo Bill is a serial killer who's skinning girls that the FBI is currently trying to hunt down. <laughs> so she, he implies that he knows who Buffalo Bill is. He won't tell her, but implies that he's probably searching for his next victim. 
cut to we see this young girl driving. She's listening to American Girl by Tom Petty. She's absolutely adorable. I love yeah. her so much. And then she she gets out of her car and she, she she sees a guy with a cast on trying to get a chair into the back of his van. Like, I feel like they just, like, it was total Ted Bundy scenario. That, yeah. They actually, so there are a lot of, like, problems with how this character has been perceived. But I think they actually do a really good job in building out, like, the tricks and the psychology of, like, the Ted Bundy. It references, like, Ted Bundy and Ed Kemper of what a character like this might actually behave like and look like, as opposed to Miss Congeniality, which I think is just, like, completely dramatic and has no grounding in anything. This but, is why I don't help people. If I saw someone with a tr- with a couch on the street, I'm not helping them. Like, I, it sounds mean, but, like, it's, like, people like this, they ruin doing nice things. Because, like, I'm not going to take that risk. <laughs> this is, like, a huge risk. I literally, that's like literally the next line in my notes of I will never help anyone ever again. No, I watched a Ted Bundy documentary when I was 17 and I will never help anyone ever again. <laughs> and I think that's fair. I think that's completely fair now. So she she helps him put stuff in his car and he ends up, he asks her, are you size 14? That's still Mike Clary Starling. I don't know I have got a good sure. buff of it. And knocks her out and then checks her jacket. And she is a size 14. I think he's like, nice or like good. <laughs> um, like size 14, like urban outfitters or size 14, like, I don't know, other brand. Because I mean, there's a lot of differences in size 14. I feel like in the 90s, sizing was still like standardized. There wasn't fast fashion yet that was like, <laughs> well, if I if I sell a size 14 as a small, more people will buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, it works, because I do that. So, meanwhile, the FBI has found a girl's body in the water. And it seems like a Buffalo Bill case. We know this because whenever Buffalo Bill kills, he always skins part of his victim. And we get a kind of case profile in the car while Crawford and Clarice are on their way to investigate that. He keeps his victims alive for three days. There's no evidence of rape or physical abuse. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. The girl they just found is the only one who's been weighed down with rocks in the river. So she was actually one of his first kills, but she's being found later. And they deduce that he's kind of getting more confident and lazier as time goes on because he's not getting caught. Clarice gives Crawford her analysis from the case file. And again, we see she's actually like really fucking good at her job and why they might have chosen her for her brain and not just her appearance. They go to the funeral home where the body is at. And she examines the body. They note the shape of the skin on her back. I think it's a little different on this one. And she finds a caterpillar in her mouth. And then one thing I actually really appreciate about this is on their way back in the car with Crawford, when they first get to the funeral home, he's talking to the sheriff's team who's there, and they're being very territorial about the body and the murder. And he says, you know, there are some unique things about the body. I don't want to discuss it in front of a woman and pulls him into a different room. And Clarice is obviously like a little upset by this. So when they're leaving in the car, Crawford says, when I said that, I can see that like really got to you and upset you. I was just trying to get like the sheriff off our case and out of the room so we could investigate. And she says, when you say things like that in front of all the sheriff's office, it discredits me and no one respects me. And he's kind of like, all right, I get that. Like, okay. 
Yeah, he's like, it mat. She says it matters. They look to you for like how to act. So if you're, you know, saying don't talk in front of a woman, they're gonna follow that kind of guide. And I loved, I loved that he tried to explain it away by saying he was using it as a way to kind of separate, to like, you know, get the shiver separated or whatever. But at the same time, it's like still like, oh. <laughs> Like, why? I I guess I understood his case, though, and that I feel like working in, like, the behavioral analysis of the FBI, like, he's very aware of, like, a sheriff being territorial and how to play that scene. And that, like, I do feel like it could have been something he was playing rather than, like, him being inherently sexist. But I do appreciate the way he has that conversation. He initiates it. He's like, I saw it upset you and the way he respects her answer. And I literally want to take this scene and just like pass it out as like a tutorial for like, this is how we're going to solve sexism going forward. Like people need to have these kinds of conversations in this tone. That's a good point. But I was going to say like around the same time as this movie, I feel like the X-Files was on TV and I could be wrong. I have watched the X-Files a number of times through, but like I... I could obviously misremember things. And I don't remember Scully's sex ever playing a role in anything like the director Skinner would do or like, they never used her sex as like a reason not to like talk in front of her or respect her. She was always very much like respected in look to. I could be wrong. I could be missing an episode and someone can call me out on it. But I just like, I feel like that is a really good depiction of like, someone being treated as more of an equal. I mean, they do make her have extra compassion and all that stuff, but. I, I've i never seen The X-Files, so I can't speak to that. But one thing I really liked about Silence of the Lambs was that I think it portrays its sexism intentionally. I, I think Miss Congeniality is very unaware of the tropes it's portraying a lot of the times, whereas I think Silence of the Lambs shows it it knows it's showing it and it portrays it as wrong. Um, But it also knows that that's realistic. And so it's, it allows itself to go there as well. And I appreciate that about it. Yeah. That's a really good, that's a really good point. I think one thing that frustrated me, which is probably very realistic. And also I, I think they did handle it in an okay way but like every man in the movie makes some sort of comment of on Clarice's physical appearance. And I'm like, I just, I hate that that was just like normal. Like it was okay. Like this even happens in ghost when Patrick Swayze makes a comment to the woman in his office that she looked good that day. But it's just like in the nineties, it was just totally okay to just comment on women's appearances at any point throughout the day. I I think it's definitely showing, though, that it's not okay, that people are doing it. But, like, especially the people who do it most, like Dr. Chisholm and Hannibal, it's portrayed as very, like, creepy and inappropriate and manipulative behavior. The other exception is actually the next scene where she goes to visit an entomologist to tell her what kind of caterpillar has been found in the throat. And he tells her it's a death's head moth and it had to be imported and grown. And he also hits on her. But I do appreciate, like, the difference between this and, like, Miss Congeniality and the earlier ones is when she's getting hit on by Chisholm, 
it's very clear that she's uncomfortable and she doesn't want it and she rejects him and tells him no and he doesn't take it well whereas when she this guy is like maybe we can like go out and get a burger or something and she goes are you hitting on me and he just says yes (laughs) (laughs) and it's portrayed as like she's smiling and it's playful and they they show like the range of interactions and are clear to show her response and how she's perceiving it when coloring that character and how we should feel about them yeah I think it's a little bit I mean I think she was just as disinterested with that guy as she was with the others but that guy's portrayed as more like feminine and more less like I don't know his persona is less forceful and domineering so it's less threatening and like there's no immediate threat whereas like Chilton is a very creepy kind of forceful person persona but I don't think she was like contemplating going on that date do you do you think she's no no I don't think so either but I think it's also showing the difference between like someone asking someone out in a light-hearted way a respectful way and then kind of accepting her response as opposed to Chisholm who's just going to take it out on her and undermine her and tell her well like you're probably just here for your looks anyways and and just show like the range of experience and difference and they I mean like this actor is cross-eyed and he's definitely portrayed like unthreateningly and I think his appearance is part of it but I think it's also his personality and the fact that like she shows up and makes, like, a joke to them about, like, the Beatles, they're playing chess with, and it's clear they're friends, and that, like, it's, like, showing, like, when this is, like, accepted and and when it's not. So we find out that Catherine, who is the girl who has been kidnapped, is a senator's daughter, and we see the senator making a plea for her on TV. Clarie makes a phony offer to Hannibal in the name of the senator, saying he can get moved to a room with a view and have a week on an island if he helps solve the Buffalo Bill case. In exchange, he wants to know more about her, so we get her worst memory from her childhood, which her dad dies and she becomes orphaned, and she goes to stay with a rancher who is a distant family member. So Hannibal reveals her in exchange for that, that the moth symbolizes change, and he tells her to look for someone who had applied to the three hospitals at the time, which do sex reassignment surgeries, and had been rejected from them for severe childhood disturbances associated with violence. So she goes off to do that. Meanwhile, we cut back to Catherine and Buffalo Bill, and we get the famous, it puts the lotion, I can't do it, in the basket, or it gets the hose again. (laughs) Put the, yeah, I can't do it either. Put the lotion in the basket, and I can't do it either. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I think it's interesting, because we start to see with this character his, like, mask and that he starts with like it rubs the lotion on its skin it does this whenever it's told and in this kind of like high pitch like controlled voice and then he breaks into put the lotion in the basket (laughs) (laughs) put the fucking lotion in the basket also he calls her it which is interesting because before we have the senator's plea and the senator's like saying her name a lot and they make it a real point to be like he's, she's saying her name so that he'll see her as a person and then you have buffalo bill saying or it gets the hose again meaning her so it's kind of interesting we definitely cut between those scenes to make that contrast and it's again they do i think there there are problems with like the lgbtq stuff but I, a lot of the ways they portray the serial killer and the psychology is is really spot on and accurate 
Chisholm tells Hannibal that there was no deal with the senator, that Clarice was playing him for information, but there is now. He made one. He was fabulous. And if Hannibal reveals the identity of Buffalo Bill to him, he'll be transferred to a different prison where he can have a view. Hannibal tells him the killer's name is Lewis, but he'll only reveal the rest to the senator in person. So they put him on a plane to Memphis, Tennessee. They, it's another situation where we need an airplane hanger to, to make the deal. It, it needs, we need an airplane hanger to make Sandra Bullock beautiful and uh, to give a serial killer enough space to, to make yeah. a deal. Well, I mean, it, he's real, we realized very quickly that he warrants needing that much space because you have to stay yeah. like so far away from him. Well, but before in the very first scene where Clarice meets him, when she goes down, they tell her, like, stay away from the glass. The last time someone gave him something and got too close, this is what happened. And they show her a picture, which we don't get to see, but we see from her face that's pretty disturbing. And I think they have a line of, like, they were able to, like, reattach her jaw or something but couldn't recover. Like, it's something really disturbing like that. But they've got him tied down to, um, what's this machine called? The roll thing? <laughs> it's like he's like on a slab like he's like just like stuck to like it, it's like one of the, <laughs> like a rowing machine no it it's like what um if you were like delivering things you would put it on here and lean it back and then roll it oh yes like if you move you put boxes on it i it's really embarrassing that i don't know it but they Dolly? try Dolly? I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of like a trolley. So he's tied to one of those, and he's got a mask over the bottom half of his face with a grate just over his mouth, which is... face grill. (laughs) Yeah. He meets the senator, but he starts antagonizing her and making comments like, did you breastfeed your daughter? Did it, like, toughen your nipples? So she she kind of calls off the deal. But he does give her the full name, Lewis Friend, as the serial killer. He's being held in a cage in a room in a museum, which I don't it's, fully understand. It looks very cinematic, but... I actually realized after watching it this time that I can't say this for 100% facts, but I'm pretty sure they mirrored the cage Harley Quinn is in in Suicide Squad after this cage because in her opening scene in Suicide Squad, which is not a good movie, but in this scene, she's in a cage in the middle of a bigger room and that's how like how you first meet her character. And oh, she yeah. is also a psychiatrist who goes crazy. So I feel like she is very Hannibal Lecter-esque. So, oh, uh, you're totally right. <laughs> that's such a good call out. So Clarice goes to see him. She knows the name he's given Lewis Friend is an anagram and not the real name. And she starts asking him again for more information to catch Buffalo Bill. And he tells her that Bill's motivation is that he covets and that you covet what you see every day. In exchange, she gives him her full Silence of the Lamb story about when she was younger at this ranch, hearing lambs screaming in the middle of the night and wanting to save them but not being able to. So not only do we understand Bill's motivation, but we get Clarice's too of why she's in the FBI and it matters so much to her to save Catherine. Long story short, Hannibal steals a man's face and escapes. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that's probably the most horrific and suspenseful scene of the movie. It's really well done. Clarice's one friend, Maurice Hannibal, will come after her. And she says she can't explain it, but she knows he would consider that rude. So again, we get a sense of his like weird morality that he has and his rules and the structure of his actions. This kind of bothered me a little bit because, you know... Ardelia's concerned. She says, oh, he won't come after me. Like, okay, but, like, it's not all about you. Like, he's a serial killer. What about everybody else? <laughs> like, this guy is a serial killer on the loose now. <laughs> like, the world does not revolve around you, Clarice. I mean. <laughs> They've been trying to figure out from where all the bodies have been found of the girls that Buffalo Bill has killed, where they can kind of triangulate where he lives. And they assume that the one girl that's been weighted down must be where he lived. And that's why he put the extra effort in. And he's seen her every day. And that's why he's coveted her and killed her. So Clarice goes to this girl's house to see what's around and find out more about her and her life and find out what she can kind of like see from her house. And she finds out when she talks to her dad that she was a seamstress and recognizes the patterns of the fabric and the shapes they're cut out in from the shapes that Buffalo Bill has been taking out of the bodies when he skins them. And she puts together that he's making a dress made of women, a women dress. So she calls Crawford, and in a scene that mimics, or I guess Miss Congeniality mimics, she's telling them that she's just found all this out, and she has this inside, and he says, yeah, we already know who the killer is. We figured it out already. They combined the list from John Hopkins, which was one of the hospitals with that would do the sex reassignment surgeries, with lists of known offenders, and, and they found a name on the list of James Gum, who had also imported Death's Head's moths. So they're heading to Chicago, where they think he is, to get him. But Crawford asks her to keep poking around where she is and find connections to the Bimmel girl so that they can make a case for that being part of the Buffalo Bill killings. Why um, do they think he's in Chicago? I can't remember exactly, but I think it's in one of the earlier scenes with Hannibal where he talks about like where his patients are. Oh, right. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Meanwhile, we cut back to Buffalo Bill. Catherine steals the dog to try and blackmail him into letting her up. He, we've got his famous um, tuck scene with the, oh, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me so hard. Would you fuck me? No, I can't do it. <laughs> fuck me. I fucked me so hard. I can't do it. <laughs> so she gets an address from the friend of the victims for a Miss Lipman, who she used to do alterations for. So she goes to see her. And this is brilliant editing work. So we see the FBI surrounding the house in Chicago that they think the killer's in. They send a guy up to the door as a fake delivery boy, and he's ringing the doorbell. We see Buffalo Bill, who's arguing with Catherine about the dog. His alarm's going off downstairs, showing that the bell is ringing. He goes upstairs to open the door, and at the door is Clarice. And we realize that the FBI are in the wrong place, and Clarice has now found the killer, and she's all on her own. She starts talking to him, and he, she's asking about the Bimmel girl, and if he knew her, he says, Was she a great big fat person? <laughs> that was like a cross between Clarice and Buffalo Bill. <laughs> to be able to do Buffalo Bill well. But he starts asking her all these questions about the investigation and if the FBI have any leads. And from the profile she's already put together of what the killer would look like, she realizes that this is him. He pulls a gun on her, which leads to a chase. She finds Catherine Martin in the basement. 
and he turns off all the lights on her and we just see his point of view. He's put on night goggles of him watching her. It feels like five minutes. I don't know how long the actual scene is of watching her through the night goggles, breathing heavily, not being able to hear him or figure out where he is and trying to search around the room in the dark and not checking corners. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even notice that. I would be a terrible FBI agent. (laughs) I'd be dead like immediately. But eventually he points his gun at her and she hears him not pull the trigger. I love the safety, release the safety. How do guns work? I don't know. This is why I'm not surviving. <laughs> <his> voice. <laughs> she has good hearing. <laughs> she, she hears him do something implying that he's about to shoot her and she manages to turn around and shoot him and kill him first. That was badass. She was a great shot. She, she, all the shots. She fucking killed it. And him. Uh, <laughs> So she graduates from the FBI Academy. She gets a congrats from Crawford, who's like, I'm not good at these things. I'm going to leave. He's not good at parties. That was like a weird line. I'm not good at this sort of thing at like a party. You just have to eat cake and stand here. It's not like. It's really bizarre. But then she gets a phone call from Hannibal. All of a sudden, she has so many new father figures to replace her one that she's missing. Mm-hmm. Hannibal uh, asks her, did the lamb stop screaming and tells her that he's having an old friend for dinner. We see Chisholm getting off a plane and Hannibal watching him. And then the movie ends with parallel scene to how we saw Clarice running into screen in the start of watching Hannibal walk away into the crowd and into the distance. And that is the silence of the lambs. And it's brilliant. And I love it. <laughs> So good. It is such a good movie. And I think it's the longest movie we've done. We've done a bunch of movies recently that have been over two hours. This one was like two hours and 18 minutes. And it didn't feel long at all. No, totally. I I actually downloaded it and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll watch an hour one night and finish it the next. And all of a sudden I was watching it that first night. I was like, oh, I'm like five minutes from the end. <laughs> it's crazy. It's so good. There's like no scenes. That, like it has no extra fat like there's nothing you could have cut from the movie to make it short like it's perfectly like paced and like Um, yeah there's no parts you're like I can go to the bathroom I like a movie where you can't go to the bathroom because every part of it is necessary every bit of dialogue is like a push to move things forward I was actually I was looking at the script trying to write the summary and I was like I got to do like a little thing for every scene. Otherwise, like nothing will make sense of the, how they find like, I mean, I feel like even like listening to my summary, I probably cut too much out about how they identify the killer, but it's so like, it would have taken the two hours and 18 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I do recommend watching the movie if you haven't seen it. It is, it deserved its best picture win for sure. I feel like everyone has, like, knows the plot of it at this point anyway. So even if you haven't seen it, like, you can't really be spoiled for it. Because it's, like, not the plot that's, like, the thing. It's, like, how they, like, get get there. That's the thing I think I love about horror movies so much. Is that, like, you can write a good comedy or drama. And you just need good actors. Cinematography where you can see them. And, like, bare minimum editing. But you can't make a good horror film without having, like, absolutely perfect filmmaking on every level of the edit, the cinematography, the set design, the acting. Like, and I feel like it pushes people to be so much more creative in how they use it to get you to feel what they need. But mm. it's, it's the 
much more interesting genre. And that's my case for more horror films. <laughs> I'm on board. I will sign your petition. Oh my gosh, thank you. You're a really supportive <laughs> friend. <laughs> so, what do these two movies have in common? <laughs> a lot. Well, I mean, so I guess because we've already talked about it quite a bit, it might be good to go into more detail about the queer characters in these movies and the homophobia. Yeah. In Miss Congeniality, I think Eric is clearly homophobic, as you've hit on and he kind of has these like weird moments throughout like both when he first meets Victor and he says like oh your your suit is really great or something and he feels like he's being hit on that like he leaves and then when he says they're together he just like can't deal with it and throughout the whole movie I feel like Victor's sexuality and gender performance is played as a joke And it's very vague. Like, they don't really ever come out and say that he's a queer character. They imply it through, like, throwaway jokes and scenes like the the ones you just described. But I don't think they ever come out and say it. Uh, I could be wrong. I think there's one line where they might. Where where they, like, either reference one of his, like, him having a boyfriend before or something like that. If they mention it at all, it's like a passing line. It's not like a character development at all yeah so he's very effeminate and grace is very masculine and i feel like the two main sources of comedy throughout this congeniality are just these two characters not performing their gender to the norms of the current society and that's where most of the comedy comes from because yeah gracie is portrayed when she before her makeover she's a very masculine character even when she's a kid and she's like you called me a girl like, that type of, like, joke and that type her, like, demeanor is very masculine. And then she gets made over, and she's now very feminine. So, yeah. And all, like, her her comedy is like, look at this woman eating a steak disgustingly. And his is like, oh, he can glide so confidently and walk that way. We've already talked about the Miss New York lesbian joke, which really, it doesn't have any impact on the plot. It really only seems like it's there to make fun of, to, to get a lesbian joke in there as well. Yeah, um, if Victor's character, if, like, Victor's, like, depiction wasn't a throwaway, like, plot device, hers definitely is. Like, that was just, like, one line, and that's it. That's all you get. And then I think it's Silence of the Lambs, it gets a little bit more interesting, Hannibal is never, like, explicitly referred to as gay, but I think he's he's queer-coded. And I think, when I was researching it online more, um, I think in, like, some of the books and maybe other franchises built out of them, it might be more explicit that he is queer. But I think it's, it's kind of, like, pursued from his portrayal that, like, he's more dangerous for being traditionally, like, cosmopolitan as opposed to the other inmates we see. Like, he likes to draw. He has a very, like, neatly kept appearance. He has a fine taste for music and art and food as opposed to, like, Migs, who is next to him. And says things like, I can smell your cunt, which Hannibal would... He, he has a line about, like, how messed up or, or how rude that is. And one of Clarice's ways of, like, stabbing him a little and jeering at him is he, he when he says the line about... Um, Crawford might be attracted to you. She she says like honestly that sounds like something Migs would say, <laughs> which is a great comeback. And but, I, Hannibal's like, but not anymore. <laughs> like, so yeah, good. which is another great comeback. 
It's a real solid back and forth between the two. Goes to the other inmates we see. He doesn't seem to have like the same sexual motivation. It's all about control, knowing someone's fine, dominating them, and that's supposed to make him so much scarier. But it's it kind of ties into this idea of like the manipulative homosexual who has all the control and can get in your head and make you do things that you don't want and are authentic to you, which I think is where like a lot of homophobia stems from, that fear. So it's interesting that he's supposed to be the scariest and he's kind of the embodiment of that kind of character and form. Then we also have Buffalo Bill, whose psychology I think is kind of interesting and the way they depict it. So Hannibal's line discussing him is, I bet he wasn't born a criminal, Clarice. He was made one through years of systematic abuse. Billy hates his own identity, you see, and he thinks that makes him a transsexual. But his pathology is a thousand times more savage and more terrifying. They're using transsexual here as transgender. They're using transvestite and transsexual as transgender. Which I think yeah. at the time, so now transvestite is like a word you wouldn't use anymore unless you were trying to be derogatory in some way. I, I think a lot of the criticism for from the LGBTQ community of this movie comes from this character and portraying transgenders being something like deviant or pathological or dangerous as opposed to just normal. Like he's not actually transgender. He's trying to, he doesn't like his identity, so he's kind of performing transgender. Which I think is why I wanted to call that line out because I think it's interesting because it could definitely be interpreted as something that goes both ways for either side of the argument. So you can either say it vilifies transsexuals or transgender as like not a real thing. It's just a pathological impulse of someone who's disturbed and doesn't really understand what they want. Or you could say that it's saying that, like, oh, no, like, most transsexuals aren't like this. This is its own thing that he clearly doesn't understand who he is. The thing that confuses it, too, is the use of the word transvestite, which is typically, although we don't use the word anymore, it's more of, like, a cross-dresser. It has nothing to do with being transgender. Well, yeah, I think that's another part of it, too, of, like, it's not just about, like, wanting to dress up as a, a different gender. And a lot of the criticism, to your point, has come from, like, not distinguishing those well enough. I, I do also think it's interesting the way they pit Hannibal and Buffalo Bill against each other as kind of like a type of queerness we're comfortable with versus a, a type we're not. And there's an article from Medium, I'll pull up so we can put it in the episode description, that describes Hannibal as like a gatekeeper of the queer community, which I think is really interesting because in his discussion of Buffalo Bill and his other patients. He, he's the one who kind of gets to decide who's performing their gender roles well and who's not, and whether that's a pathological issue or, or something normal. So we're, we're kind of like constantly looking. It's, it's weird that even like the FBI is kind of looking to him for that distinction. And he does go back and forth a lot too. Like, I mean, clearly he's an unreliable source of information because he does kind of say different things at different times you really don't know what is true when he's sharing information and what is he's using as a manipulation that's not actually factual yeah like example like benjamin rasdale we don't he's he's describing him in multiple different ways at different points in the movie to the point where it's like you don't really know yeah definitely 
But but I think either way, he's Han- the way Hannibal's portrayed is kind of as like an anti-hero. Like we definitely there's something like victorious and seeing him being able to get revenge at Chishom at the end, whereas Buffalo Bill is always portrayed as a monster. And I think even the way they, they kind of like transform their identity using others, like Hannibal skins a man's face to transform his identity to escape. And we're supposed to see that as resourceful and brilliant. Bill skins women to also escape his body. And that's monstrous, whereas really both are pretty monstrous. And it's a little weird that they're having us empathize with one but not the other. And they do a similar thing with the victims of kind of having us dislike Chisholm and, and uh, Hannibal's other victims of the guards and showing us how they're taking advantage of their power. But Catherine's always supposed to be empathetic. And I don't want to like contrast one crime with the other, but I, I think they're very similar serial killers. And the, the way they kind of make Hannibal more acceptable is a little problematic. But I, I think this kind of also follows through with Miss Congeniality as well with Victor and Miss New York, where we're really comfortable with Victor's queerness because it's it's like the way we would usually think of a gay man, whereas Miss New York is more of a joke because she doesn't present as queer because she's so ultra feminine and a beauty queen. It, it's that same contrast of like queer as we're comfortable seeing it and queer as we're not, that they're making. And we're not expecting it. With Miss New York, we're not expecting it because they did not give her any backstory, any characterization that would lead you to believe she was queer. Not that, and that's the thing. It's like you would never know, like you would not know, nor should you be able to know someone's sexuality, you know, without speak without getting to know the person so we're less comfortable because it's just put out there in that one throwaway line with no backstory and no you don't expect it to happen whereas with Victor they do kind of he has a couple lines that lead you to believe this he's characterized in a certain way so you kind of you're familiar with it whereas hers is just out of nowhere this one line so it comes out of nowhere and I think that Victor is, plays a very similar role to Hannibal and Miss Congeniality of kind of being a gatekeeper as well, less for queerness, but more so for gender performance and what's an acceptable portrayal of a gender and what's not. Where like he likes Eric as much as he likes the beauty queens because he performs his gender as he should and is very like masculine and wears suits well. He antagonizes Grace like even before she can even say anything because she doesn't play her gender role the way he thinks she should. So I I think he very much plays that same gatekeeper of the person who's supposed to tell us what's an acceptable performance of gender and what's an indicator that there's something wrong in someone's psyche. And yeah, I did just want to also note that on the topic of Silence of the Lambs being portrayed as problematic, that Jonathan Demme was queer. And obviously, like, perception versus intent, the way it was perceived as offensive is justified. But um, he, I, I do think it's interesting that he was queer and he was very upset to find out that his film was being perceived this way and that he had offended this group. Um, but, yes. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I think perception is important regardless of intent. And it's, you know, it's a hard it's a hard thing because, yeah, this was something that in 1991, when this movie came out, there there wasn't as much knowledge that, as we have today. So I think like it want. I don't think, you know, I think that's sad for him because he did want it to be 
he didn't want it to be negative, clearly, but perception is so important. And yeah, that's how it was perceived and for good reason. So, yeah, that idea of gender performance also kind of is interesting and like talking about the villains and their motives, because obviously Hannibal talks about Bill as someone who covets something he doesn't have. But I think the motives for the villains in both films are characters who like to achieve some sort of female ideal that whether by aging or just not winning the beauty pageant or being born a different gender is not within their reach. Um, so they start to take it out on society and other people and how they get it. Yeah. And they both, they both, yeah, they're both coveting. Cause I feel like Kathy is definitely coveting the younger beauty queens fame and youth and beauty and all that. Yeah, super high. They have a great scene in the beginning when she's in her office and there are posters of previous winners behind her. When she stands up, it <laughs> looks like the crown of the poster behind her is like perfectly framing her head and like she's wearing it. Yes, I loved that. I noticed that too. Um, I think another thing that's super interesting, so kind of like, you know, we do have these villains that mirror each other. And I think we also have, and then we, you know, we have that, kind of queer coded mentor figure that mirror each other. And we also have this, so like on a more kind of positive trope note, we do have female friendships shown as being very important, which I think is nice in a movie about women who are in these, you know, male dominated professions and taking a lot of shit at work that we are shown that they have these supportive women friends so in Talents of the Lambs we have Ardelia who's you know very supportive of Clarice helps her crack the case doesn't take any credit for that (laughs) and is very supportive and then we also have Gracie who's befriends the contestants and they could have made that a joke into about catty overly competitive women like a ton of movies about beauty pageants do but instead they're very supportive They, they help her get ready for the contest when Victor leaves, they make sure she looks good instead of sabotaging her. And in the end, they give her the award and everyone rallies around her. So I thought that was at least one nice thing. Yeah, I I don't know. I kind of went back and forth on the female friendships and Miss Congeniality because on one end it does, we, we are allowed to see like women supporting women, which is great. But on the other hand, Racy by being a tomboy is the only one who we're allowed to think of as kind of like smart um, or see any more of her personality. Um, And I feel like because she's not traditionally feminine, it's supposed to make us think of her as like uniquely, uniquely capable in a way that other women are not. Uh, and, And I think it definitely portrays her friends as a little bit lesser for being feminine and turns them into characters um, where the only one we're really allowed to fully empathize with and see as anything more than a beauty queen and find out more about her background is Miss Rhode Island. And the only way they do that is by making her a victim of sexual assault, which they don't really handle responsibly. And as we've talked about, kind of turn into a very victim blaming exchange. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think it's like they, at least in Silence of the Lambs, we don't see a lot of Ardelia, but it feels like she's got more going for her. Like, I feel like, 
feels like she's still a real character. Whereas with Miss Congeniality, they're just like, well, this one's Texas, so we'll make her a redhead, and that's her personality. <laughs> and, like, this one's New York, and so we'll give her, like, a Latina accent, and that's her personality. They didn't really put the effort into developing all of them. Yeah. I think I just, I think more so than other beauty pageant movies of which like drop dead gorgeous or like, I don't know, I can't think of any other beauty pageant movies, but the whole like women being super catty is always a plot point. And it was just a surprise and kind of a nice change that even though it's not fully fleshed out and it's not, you know, the characters aren't super developed on their own. There is this idea that, they are supporting each other rather than knocking each other down. So like, even as like archetype, like even as if they're stock characters, they are still kind of lifting each other up more than they're knocking each other down, which is a nice change from some other films in the same like genre. Yeah, I definitely see that. I feel like it gets like half of the way there because I feel like it's, it's kind of talking about like, Oh, well, we won't put like women against women, but not talking at all about like the society that puts them in that situation. And I feel like the way they talk about feminism is kind of weird and shamey and bad and puts feminists down. Like there's, there's one line where when they're doing like their top five Q and a, uh, Gracie gets asked, New Jersey, as you know, there are many who consider the Miss United States pageant to be outdated and anti-feminist. What would you say to them? And her response is, well, I would have to say I used to be one of them. And then I came here and I realized that these women are smart, terrific people who are just trying to make a difference in the world. And we've become really good friends. I mean, I know we all secretly hope the other one will trip and fall on her face. And wait a minute, I've already done that. And for me, this experience has been one of the most rewarding and liberating experiences of my life which I feel like doesn't really answer the question because calling something outdated and anti-feminist isn't really a commentary on the women participating, but on the structure. And all she says is like, yeah, the women are cool, which like, yeah, you can have totally great smart women, but it doesn't mean that the structure of the pageant isn't outdated and problematic. But that's actually a great answer because I was like media trained um, at like an older job. And I was always told, answer the question you want to be asked, not the question you're asked. So she answered the question she wanted to be asked so she could give a nice answer. <laughs> I feel like she couldn't have said the real answer. I mean, I'm sure they didn't have that in mind when they wrote that scene, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Cause I mean, like she is still trying to get through to the higher levels in this beauty pageant. It was like a weird subtext of the movie of like trying it's trying to be like women should be supporting other women. So you shouldn't have these prejudgments of pretty women as vapid, like feminists would. Whereas like, that's really not the goal or purpose of feminism at all. I don't know. It upset me the way it kind of like portrays that. Yeah. I mean, beauty pageants do have a ton of problems. So I think maybe like my own opinions on beauty pageants are coloring my perspective that like, I don't know, not a huge beauty pageant person. Were you in pageants? <laughs> I think you can be a feminist and participate in a beauty pageant, but I think the idea of having women, 
I mean, John Oliver does a great segment about this where they keep making the joke throughout Miss Congeniality of like, it's not a beauty pageant, it's a scholarship fund. And he did something where he researched that and was like, yeah, so it turns out beauty pageants give the most scholarships to women of any other like institution in America. And if that's the case, it's really fucked up that we live in a society where like, that's how women are expected to get what they need to succeed and compete in that way. So again, it, like it's it's not so much a commentary on like the women or anyone who would participate in that because maybe that's what they want to do or maybe that's the option available to them. It's just the idea that that's the only option or the best option for so many people. And that's how we think women need to compete to get those resources. I mean, that actually makes me like even more angry to think about it like that because that's saying that the biggest amount of money that women are have access to in scholarship money, the stipulation is that you're physically attractive. Like you can only be eligible for this money if you're pretty. You also have to be willing to do that. But at the base core of like to get into this thing, whether you want to or not, you can't get in unless you're pretty. And that's yeah. fucked up. Yeah. But now we're off topic <laughs> a little bit. Not very much on topic because I think <laughs> then like in both movies, you also have this theme of these women who are trying to succeed at their jobs. And there's this question of like both of them, it's implied at some point in the movie that's just because of their appearance. For Gracie, it really does seem like it is just because of her appearance because we don't get to see her ever being like very good at her job. She, her, her compassion is scapegoated, but like she does mess up and she doesn't follow orders in a way that does lead to a teammate being shot which I think if you're on an FBI is like a pretty serious fuck up um she makes the plan better I guess that's the one thing we see her kind of succeeding at in her job that the other guys don't that scene you called out earlier where she's kind of saying oh we should do this and do this but like she doesn't hack the letter faster um but and it really seems mostly like she's been put on the job for her appearance whereas in Silence of the Lambs, we've already talked about, but it kind of feels like no matter how much she proves herself, there won't, there's always that question of like, are you here just because of your appearance? Even if she's proved she's not, there are going to be people who will think that. And is she willing to accept that? Like, yeah, maybe Crawford did put her in with Hannibal because she was his taste, so to speak. But does that mean she doesn't take the opportunity? That might be like her only chance. So it's, it, it is like this question through both of like how much are willing, women willing to put up with that to get to where they want to be to succeed. Yeah, and I think that like goes into, so like both movies obviously take place in the setting of the FBI, which mm -hmm. is like very traditionally like a boys club, male dominated profession. I mean, that's changing obviously, but like back in like the 90s, that was like a very real kind of thing where it was mostly men and women just in general are like, you know, in just any profession are typically objectified. They have to fight 10 times harder for half the respect. And I think that's like highlighted even more in a very male dominated profession, like being an FBI agent. So, yeah. you know, like you're saying how much of the, how much of their success is based on their looks, the fact that that even has to be a question and, you know, like Gracie, when she's unattractive, she's not more respected. She's just a joke. 
And then when she's made over, she's objectified. So she really can't win either way. It's kind of like how these women have to fit into this male-dominated field when they're really just like clawing their way into some sort of like, because I don't know. I I think that's interesting, though, because even we've talked about how like both women have a queer coded, either outwardly queer, queer coded mentor in Hannibal and Victor. But I think like all of their relationships, they're they're in this male field and there are only a few kind of relationships they're allowed to have. Like either they have a colleague with sexual tension, like they do with Crawford and Eric. Or if they don't have sexual tension, then that character must be older and queer and not a viable um, option for them. Because if if they were viable, they have to be attracted to them. Like, how, how could this woman not like this guy? <laughs> so, right. so it's weird, like, the relationships they're even allowed to have within those environments or can be portrayed. They can't just be friends with someone unless they're queer or, in the case of Clarice, like, cross-eyed and not some, someone who would be, like, obviously... not attractive in a, in a way that men could understand. And it doesn't have to do with like their personality or, or their intelligence. It's really weird. Yeah. It's just, it's exhausting to even think about. And I feel like that speaks to the fact that it's like what it must feel like for these women to like consistently have to deal with all of the things you just said, just to go to work, like just to have a, just to like be in this career that they really want. And like, One's a horror, one's a rom-com or whatever. But, like, that, just that feeling of, like, consistently having to fight harder for something and for credibility, for respect, for credit where it's due and all this shit. And it's like, ugh. <laughs> like, I'm exhausted thinking about it. I think both movies have a theme of, like, women saving weaker women or women saving lambs, so to speak, to use, like, the metaphor for Silence of the Lambs where it's like the only people who are really going to bat for these women in compromising situations, whether it's Miss Rhode Island or the beauty pageant contestants or, or Catherine and really empathizing with the victim, it's portrayed as a weakness a lot of the time, but the only people who are capable of doing it are the other women. And then so much responsibility is put on them, not only to save other women and make a case for it, but to like prove that it's necessary and that should count as much as the other cases that the FBI received. And then like the other, the other end of that is like we were talking about with Gracie and Miss Congeniality is like the compassion they have for these other women is also a flaw because it's also the thing that has them messing up at work as well. So like Gracie botched the initial sting operation because she saved the mob boss who was choking or jumped on the guy with the gun when no one else, when, when they, when she was told not to. And it's like, I feel like this compassion is necessary. It's shown as necessary, but then also treated as a flaw at the same time. So you really can't win. (laughs) Like there's no winning. One one thing I think is interesting, which I don't know, I guess it is a similarity, but on the most like superficial level, is both of these movies had less less respected, less appreciated sequels. So <laughs> Miss Congeniality had Miss Congeniality 2, Armed and Fabulous, which came out in 2005. So that was five years later. How can you fail with a name like that? <laughs> right. 
<laughs> well, like the plot is bonkers. Like if you go to Wikipedia and read the plot summary, it is it is like ridiculous. I think I watched um, Miss Congeniality too at one point when it came out, and I remember I I don't know if I made it through the whole thing. And like the plot is like outrageous. So like Benjamin Bratt's character dumps her. This is supposed to take a few weeks. It takes place a few weeks after the first movie. Benjamin Bratt's character dumps her off screen. He's not in the second movie. Also, like, it was made five years later, and it's supposed to be a couple weeks later. So Sandra Bullock is now, like, 40, playing, like, a pageant queen who's, like, in her early 20s. Because the limit to be in Miss USA is, like, 25. So, like, this casting is outrageous. They do make it more of, like, a buddy cop movie, which is cool. So they have Regina King playing another agent. It's, like, her friend. Or not, it's like an antagonistic friendship. And then I think in the end, they become friends, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> yeah, the main plot of Miss Congeniality is women can be friends. <laughs> yeah, and it's like they frame it like it's like this new concept, which I guess it is. It's two different kinds of women. We have the smart ones and the pretty ones together, and they get along. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just solved world peace. <laughs> and um, then... Hannibal was the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, and it took place 10 years later, but it was actually made seven years later in 2001. And they replaced Jodie Foster with Julianne Moore as Clarice. I love Julianne Moore, but I don't want... I like Jodie Foster as Clarice. Talking about, like, the flaw of compassion, in the second... So in Hannibal, initially, like, Clarice, like fucks up at work because there's like a drug dealer and they're like on an operation and she orders everyone to stand down because the drug dealer who is a woman, but the drug dealer is carrying an infant and she goes, she gets everyone to stand down and then a man breaks her orders and a gunfight breaks out. And then she's blamed for like the mission going wrong. So it's kind of like a similar theme of like, compassion being a flaw i feel like it's still a theme in movies today which bothers me but um the other i think that silence of the lambs might itself be a sequel to a movie that came out in the 80s when i was writing my quick blurb in the beginning (laughs) i think i saw that on wikipedia that there was like a man hunter in the 80s that is supposed to be like the same universe i don't know if it's the same actors or uh, it's a different director. Interesting. I know there was a show that's been, like, really praised. I didn't watch it, but Hannibal, that came out, like, fairly recently. Uh, Not too recently, but in, like, the 2000s at some point. I don't know. Time. What is time? I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, so lots in common from very serious things to very superficial things. These movies have way more in common than you would ever think when you just hear their titles this is one of my favorite pairings it is so like I didn't even think it would be as good as it is because they are so similar it's crazy crazy so every episode we're breaking down the lesson we can all learn from watching these two movies together so what did we learn today don't have William Shatner in your movie if you don't want every scene stolen Test tube shots are never a good idea. It's not just women's responsibility to protect other women. 
And fuck your boys club. Yeah, fuck that shit. That's it. Nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) So which do you think teaches that lesson better? Silence of the Lambs. I, I can't even think of a justification. I just don't, I think this congeniality is missing the mark on a lot of things. I agree. I 100% agree. And I don't even think we need to justify it. I think it's that obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Which did you enjoy more? Silence of the Lambs. Yes, I, just, I love it. <laughs> and I know you love it. It's one of the best movies of all time. It's just perfect. Well, I feel like that was easy. Yeah, this has been the shortest lesson section we've ever had. <laughs> Mic drop. Silence of the lamp. <laughs> Boom. Um, well, I guess until next time, I'm Tara. And I'm Amanda. And remember, all's fair in love. And gore. What the fucking lotion in the basket? Let's go, girls.